0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener to the Barbell Medicine Podcast Series, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you for joining us here. While uh, we talk about bones, I've got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, is back on the podcast. What's going on, man? Hey, man. How are you? I mean, this is not my favorite topic because I think it's complex, And then so you could just, you know, it should really be a podcast series. However, it's very common. It's very costly from like how many medical resources we dedicate to it. And uh, because it's so common and costly, like if you're a medical or fitness professional, you're going to see somebody with osteoporosis and we're going to talk about it today. Uh, Before we hop into that, it's been, you've been absent. I mean, not like in spirit, but you've been absent from the podcast. And I just... If you've, if you just have picked up the barbell medicine podcast series, like just started listening and you're wondering who Dr. Brockie is, uh, that's awesome. just, that's <laughs> in addition to be, that, the, that other silky voice on the side of the line, can you give people just like a little intro?
2: Yeah, I think we've gotten, uh, we picked up a fair amount of new listeners and audience recently. So um, if they want to scroll back through some of the older podcasts all the way back to episode one, I'll I'll, I'll be there. But a uh, short story on me, I'm an internal medicine physician, uh, coach with barbell medicine, lifter, uh, a bunch of other things, live and work currently in San Antonio, Texas, and um, been doing that for a while.
0: And yeah, Jordan and I met back in med school, and we've been doing this thing ever since. Yeah, that's about right. Dude, we we are we are up to 1.8 million downloads in 2021 for our podcast. That's legit. which is ter- well, it's terrifying. Honestly, it's just it's ter- <laughs> like, oh my gosh, how many people? I, you know, it might be one person just downloading the you know the episodes. <laughs> you also hope that you didn't
2: say something egregiously wrong around uh, wrong along the way that has uh, gotten into 1.8 million brains.
0: <laughs> I'm certain, but that's the thing, right? Like, if we if time goes by, yeah. There's definitely going to be stuff that's wrong in there. Anyway. Yep. All right. This is, again, if you were hoping to talk about, listen to a podcast about programming or lifting weights, uh, we're going to, we're going to get into it with respect to osteoporosis. And again, because this is so common, this is likely affecting one or more people in your family, one or more people in your social circle. Uh, so this would be useful information for you to have as the local fitness and health subject matter expert in your, in your crew. So Austin, I got, I got the first question. Let's just get it out of the way. Like what are bones? <laughs> I, I mean, just seriously, like I know that they exist and, and they're inside, you know, hopefully, Sure. You prefer them to be inside.
2: Yeah, I think that I think that there's some important groundwork that you need to lay because folks typically view bones and the skeleton, the body in general, from a very mechanical perspective. They use analogies to like, you know, buildings and structures and things like that. And the way they work is really quite different. And that's a major point of departure right away that will lead you towards different conclusions as far as how does osteoporosis come up? What do we do about it? Uh so bones are. Uh, tissues that are made up of a bunch of cells a bunch of proteins there's minerals in there most people probably know there's calcium there's also things like phosphorus and sodium that's all baked into our bones they have a thicker outer region and an inner kind of more hollowish uh, space uh, called the bone marrow which people may have heard of or they may have eaten or something like that at a at a at a meal um, the harder outer parts provide most of the structural support the things that our muscles and tendons attach to and pull on to help us move around and lift weights and, and do things in our life and the inner uh, space is where the bone marrow lives and that's what actually produces blood cells immune cells things like that for us which is critically you know important um, but the most important takeaway from this just initial groundwork that we're laying is that bones are Alive, They are constantly building up. They're constantly breaking down. They're getting remodeled um, every day, week, month, year over the course of your life, depending on the stress that they are exposed to, the loads that they are exposed to, or conversely, the stresses and loads that they are not exposed to. They are, uh, altered in the setting of various diseases. And so a bunch of different things can alter, you know, how your bones function, whether they build up, how much they break down, how they get recycled and remodeled over the course of your life. They are living tissues, which is real important to understand right at the outset.
0: You know, every time in anatomy, when I had to cut a bone in half and I saw the trabecular network on the inside, I just think I got, I got hungry honeycomb, like just right there in my face. And I was like, "Well, and it's kind of yellow because of the fat in there." And you're like, mm, "I could go one for of, one of the rare
2: people who was hu- who was hungry in anatomy lab."
0: Yeah, well, you just get used to it, and then like your <laughs> your drive to eat just over you know supersedes what you that's know true. the formic acid smell. Yes. All right. So the word osteoporosis comes from the Latin meaning porous bones, but that's not what your doctor is necessarily saying when they. Uh, if they give somebody a diagnosis of osteoporosis. So what is what is the definition medically of osteoporosis?
2: Yeah, I think you'll find definitions that use different words. and And this is, you know, we talk a lot about how language and the words we use with patients matters. And this is actually a condition where I emphasize that quite a bit when I'm talking about and teaching on this topic. So I describe osteoporosis as a decrease in the quality of bones that ultimately increases the risk of uh, a fracture and a fracture is just a fancy medical word that describes a, a breaking of a bone and bone quality. It might seem like a kind of a vague term. And that's intentionally vague because it's something that, uh, in combination describes things like changes in the density, the mineral density of our bones, but it's not just bone mineral density. It also affects the, what, what's called the microarchitecture the little structures that you were describing basically that you saw when you, when you, uh, uh, cut through some of them, um, as well as the turnover rate of bone, how it's remodeled and other aspects of bone structure and function. So a lot of folks will get to, you know, the diagnosis, but maybe folks who are familiar with osteoporosis might know that it might have something to do with bone mineral density. And I'm just emphasizing up front that it's actually quite a bit more than just bone mineral density. It's just a change in bone quality that ultimately increases the risk of fracture. And that risk of fracture is what we really care about what I was getting at with the language side of things is doctors will sometimes describe this to patients as having fragile bones or brittle bones or use words like that. And while in some sense, those have some degree of accuracy to them, the problem is that they can paint a picture that is very ominous and scary to people. I've seen and worked with patients and heard of uh, patients who have received this kind of language or heard their bones described in this particular way And when it's coming from a trusted medical authority, it can induce a lot of fear of movement. Um, And that's going to be a big problem because movement is going to play a really important role in our management of this condition and our treatment of it and reducing people's risk of falls and fractures. We have to get people moving. We have to load them, things like that. And if you're under the impression that, you know, taking this very mechanical view of the body that I have fragile, brittle bones, that if I bend over, that if I go pick something up, I'm going to, you know break apart or something like that, which is not accurate. And it's not really how this works, but you're going to be very fearful of engaging in that treatment process. So I don't use that sort of language at all with patients. I rather emphasize that their bones are living tissues, just like their muscles, and they can adapt to the stress that we put on them. And we need to actually get them stressed in order to build them back up.
0: Yep. I like that. Well, but so interestingly, would this be a time where you would maybe use the phrase bone health? We don't like using stuff like gut health spine health (laughs) mainly because they're not descriptive enough but then also insinuating that there's like some way to detect (laughs) what what the health of this complex organ or musculoskeletal system uh, actually is in this particular case we we kind of do uh would you ever use that phrase or I don't typically, but I wouldn't actually necessarily have a
2: problem with it if it were immediately followed up with the emphasis that uh, to the extent that the bone health may be decreased, it's something that actually can improve, it can adapt with, with some specific interventions that we have available. Um, same same with bone quality. Whatever phrase you want to use, if you pair it with the idea that, hey, we can do something about this, but we, it's going to need some stimulus, it's going to need some stress to, to adapt. You know, I kind of make it analogous to uh, uh, muscles follow a similar trajectory to bones over the course of life. In other words, uh, a lot of folks who have osteoporosis, they also don't tend to have a whole lot of muscle on their body because they tend to track together and respond to similar stimuli. If somebody has relatively low amounts of muscle, Um, or they have, you know, weak muscles or something like that, nobody is going to view that person and say, oh, you know, you have weak, fragile, brittle muscles that shouldn't be loaded because they're going to like tear or something like that. Everybody knows, hey, if if your muscles are smaller or weaker or something like that, then you need to load them, provide a stimulus and they'll grow and get bigger. People don't view bones the same way, even though they function real similarly in this, in this, uh, in this,
0: Uh, lens. I I like that. Uh, So I want to talk about the causes of osteoporosis. But like, how do you how do you diagnose it? What's the like, you know, what do you do in the clinic if, if you're screening or testing somebody for osteoporosis? So the diagnosis, uh, can be made in a few different ways.
2: And we kind of try to target our diagnostic testing based on the person's risk of having osteoporosis. In other words, we don't go searching to diagnose everybody under the sun. Um, for more discussion on that, we've done some discussions, some podcasts on screening before, um, as a, as a general kind of approach to, to practice. But when it comes to osteoporosis, you can automatically diagnose it. If somebody has a fracture, in certain areas associated with little to no trauma. And that can mean like a fall from standing height. So you can, you know, if you say, if you fall, you're just standing on the ground and you fall and that results in fracturing your hip or something like that, that's not typical. And that would suggest that uh, uh, maybe there's something, some issue inherent to the bone that actually led to that fracture. And so that would immediately prompt us to look for evidence of osteoporosis, and you'd probably meet the diagnostic criteria there. So you'll hear the terminology for that called a fragility fracture. Um, Mm. And again, that's medical language. I might use that when talking to another doctor, I would not use that with a patient. And that can involve a low impact fracture, typically affecting the bones in the spine, the hip, the wrist, uh, the humerus or the upper arm bone, ribs, sometimes the pelvis, if, if you have a low impact or no impact uh, a, a fracture of one of those bones, um, then that would definitely raise suspicion for, for a problem like osteoporosis. Now, if somebody does not have evidence of a fracture, uh, we use uh, a test for bone mineral density. It's a fancy kind of x-ray called a DEXA scan. And basically, we'll take x-rays of a couple different areas and compare the density, how dense the mineral is in your bones, um, and calculate some statistics based off of that. There are these fancy things called T-scores and Z-scores that we don't necessarily need to get into great details on, but there are diagnostic cutoffs that are set, um, basically where we compare how dense are your bones compared to healthy bone. Um, You can think of it that way. And beyond a certain point, um, that would meet criteria or raise suspicion for osteoporosis. And then finally, if combining all your risk factors for a fracture, if we can calculate, there there are tools for this, calculate your risk of a fracture is over 20% or your risk of a hip fracture is over 3%, then that's another criterion that we can use to diagnose osteoporosis. Um, So these are kind of the general approaches. But again, even though the main way we diagnosed it is either after the fact, which is unfortunate when somebody's already had a fracture, or using a DEXA scan where we just look at bone mineral density, I want to keep emphasizing that there is more to this diagnosis than just the bone mineral density number alone that you get on a DEXA scan, because I've had lots of folks, lots of patients, family members who are very fixated on the bone mineral density number on their T-score, and they view that as like the only thing that matters, when really what matters is have you had a fracture or not? What's your fracture risk, and and what's your risk of falls in general? So those are the things that I tend to focus on um, when it comes to to diagnosis, and not putting too much emphasis or, or exclusive kind of emphasis on the the DEXA scan or the T score numbers alone, because there's again more to this than that.
0: Yeah. So if you if you happen to have a DEXA scan to assess your body fat, this dual energy X ray absorptometry test, it will tell you your bone mineral density. But we are not recommending that people go out there and pr- get either of those tests. I don't think you need a DEXA scan to assess fat mass versus lean mass. Uh, there are other cheaper ways to like assess for that. For example, using anthropometric measurements. So, waist circumference, arm circumference, neck circumference, etc. Uh, weight change over time. The mirror is also like undefeated here. We don't need a DEXA scan to tell you like, well, how much exact mass, muscle mass, or fat mass do you have? But if you were an appropriate candidate for getting screened for a uh, for osteoporosis, well, you'll get that. Now, here's what I really wonder. And I, I don't think you know the answer to this, but just this is, I'm, I'm wondering. When you get the DEXA scan to check for fat mass versus lean body mass, you get your bone mineral density. But is the reciprocal relationship there too? Meaning like you're... <laughs> You get your primary, you know, recommends that you get to go get a DEXA scan. So you get a DEXA scan to tell your bone mineral density. Does it also tell you how much lean body mass versus fat mass you have? Not
2: typically, because typically it's examining certain anatomic sites. So it'll be focused in about a lot on the lumbar spine, on the hip, on the wrist. um, Most typically, whereas the the fat one, it'll see like your whole body will be on there and it'll have that kind of calculated out. So
0: I'd be curious to know what the price difference is because you can get like here in San Diego, you can get a a DEXA scan for 150 bucks. And it's like, so I, I do wonder, although again, since you're not investigating those anatomical sites, it's probably less specific for osteoporosis, but okay. I've killed enough time now talked about, like, how we would diagnose it. What are the causes, like, and risk factors for osteoporosis? So, like, what would portend a worse outcome, uh, potentially?
2: I think it's fairly easy to understand how this condition comes about if you look at what happens to bones over the course of life. Um, We, in our early years, in our first two, three decades of life, we tend to be building up bone mass, assuming, you know, a pretty good nutritional status. Um, and so you'll achieve peak bone mass. Most adults will achieve peak bone mass around 25 or 30 years old. Um, this is assuming that they're not like hard training, uh, throughout this period of time, in which case that can modify that trajectory a little bit. And then after that, and particularly, uh, after menopausal age, middle age, um, we tend to start losing bone mass and, So the osteoporosis can result from either combination of having not achieved a particularly high peak amount of bone in your 20s or 30s, um, and or if you have an accelerated rate of losing bone, particularly as you proceed through middle and later ages. So you can kind of imagine this as a graph of, you know, your your bone mass going up in early life and falling off later on. So the the lower that peak is and the steeper the fall off is, those are the kind of things that would result in an increased risk of uh, um. Of developing osteoporosis. So some of the risk factors that we look at for this are age. This is just something that is going to happen over time or tends to happen over time. Um, but estrogen, the hormone estrogen plays a pretty important role in bone mineral density. And so, uh, for women, this tends to obviously become an issue after menopause when you kind of lose that protective effect of estrogen on bone, but also any other situation where either the ovaries fail earlier in life, um, or if they're removed surgically for some reason, Those are situations where an individual would need to receive uh, some form of hormone replacement therapy. Very important if that happened early in life in order to reduce the risk of losing a lot of bone mass. Um, I've seen this happen a few times with patients, and it can be a a, a big problem when it comes to to fracture risk. Um, Other other risk factors include having really low body weights, especially if it's related to some form of an eating disorder, uh, smoking, alcohol use, and then there are a whole host of other underlying medical conditions that can contribute to losing bone mass, Um, things with the parathyroid gland, kidney diseases, uh, gastrointestinal diseases, certain other hormone related issues like low testosterone in men can contribute to this. Um, Cushing syndrome and a bunch of medicines uh, like prednisone, uh, androgen deprivation therapy that's used in prostate cancer, tamoxifen is, is sometimes used in chemotherapy context, things like that. Um, so there's, a, and that's even an incomplete list. I just kept it a little shorter for, for, brevity, but there's a lot of things that can impact, um, some combination either of the peak bone mass that you achieve early in life or the rate of bone loss that happens, uh, um, you know, as
0: you proceed through middle and later ages. Yeah. The body weight thing is super interesting because I remember learning, uh, or maybe I misremember learning <laughs> that there was some like reduction potentially in osteoporosis related fracture risk if somebody, if there was an individual with excess adiposity or obesity, right? Because the idea was they weighed more, they had more lean body mass, it'd be more stimulus on the skeletal system to, you know, be have more bone mineral density, but you know, bone, more bone mineral content. Uh, well, the actual updated data on that suggests nah, son, because the actual presence of excess adiposity is kind of like limits the deposition of that bony matrix. So the bone mineral content is less uh, in general, and less uh, bone mineral density as well. So it's kind of like, this spread here, right? Uh, if you have a low BMI, low body weight, especially if it's due to an eating disorder, but not necessarily only if you have had a history of an eating disorder or a very high body weight with a lot of excess adipose, uh, adipose tissue, your risk increases. And so, um, uh, we, we, we know that having increased lean body mass tends to promote greater musculoskeletal bone mineral density, but not at the expense of having excess adipose tissue. So it's not, so if someone was like, so should I bulk just to get a stronger skeleton? It's like, ah, well, you know, I don't think we should like (laughs) put your BMI over 30, for example. Um, But yeah, so that's, it's really interesting how all these causes uh, and risk factors like contribute to the disease process, mainly because it's just complex right? We think something as simple as like, oh, calcium level is so simple, you know, and just replace the calcium. It's like, eh, well, if the calcium regulation is off due to X, Y, Z, or, you know, some any other number of things that you can't just replace the calcium, it's not going to work. Um, okay, so you, you have somebody with these risk factors, uh, potentially who has received the diagnosis of osteoporosis, but has not yet been adequately treated. Um, what are some complications that can occur secondary to uh, this low bone mineral density, reduced bone mass.
2: Yeah. Overwhelmingly, the main complication that we care about that we're trying to avoid are the fractures, the the, the broken bones. And that includes those fragility fractures, quote unquote. Again, we don't use that term with patients, but uh, those are the ones that tend to happen at the hip, wrist, upper arm, uh, uh, spine, uh, ribs, and pelvis, as well as some other places can can also be affected. But those are some of the more common ones. And really importantly, uh, about 90% of the fractures that are seen in the setting of osteoporosis are related to falls, um, which is a whole huge topic of its of its okay. own. Um, but again, remember how I mentioned that a lot of folks who develop this issue, uh, muscle and bone tend to track together over the lifespan. And so osteopenia, osteoporosis um, have been very well you know, recognized. A lot of folks know kind of what these things are, more or less. But sarcopenia, which I've lectured about, we've talked about before, our little bubble, is, is probably knows more about that, having low amounts of muscle mass and muscle strength, tends to co-occur very frequently with osteopenia osteoporosis. So having low muscle mass and low bone mass tend to track together. And if you have low low muscle mass, low muscle strength, um, that can make it more difficult for you to kind of uh, you know move your body through space, control it, you know, adapt to the environmental situation and changes that may result in an increased risk of falls. And so when it comes to treating osteoporosis, we have to address both of these things, both the bone density and the fall risk, a lot of which comes to muscle strength and muscle mass.
0: Yeah, I tried to look into this a little bit to see like, if if this is a chicken and egg situation with like the loss of muscle, and then loss of bone or loss of bone, then loss of muscle, or if they're really just like paired up, I couldn't find anything that made me feel wise or confident here. Um, do you have any opinion on that? I mean, this is just uh, to the listeners at home, the next 60 seconds is literally just us making up stuff based on experience <laughs> and, and, and what other things we've read. But do you have like a, a prediction as far as how this tracks?
2: Yeah. So I think one thing would be, is there one of those other secondary risk factors that's driving the condition, right? So does the person have a you know kidney disease? Do they have a parathyroid problem? Or is there some medication that's really driving, that's directly kind of affecting bone quality? Um, in that situation, then I would expect, you know, a lot of times they would be a little bit more separated, so to speak, in that this is primarily going to be a bone related issue. For people who don't have most of those things, just general kind of you could call it age-related uh, osteoporosis without any of those other things, something that's just developed. Um, then I think probably in that situation, the individual may have had a low peak bone mass earlier in life. And then the the bigger issue may be the rate that they're losing bone. And I could totally see a situation where general physical inactivity uh, can result in loss of muscle mass. Um... And, and that kind of becomes a perpetuating cycle. Or or if somebody has an incident, some illness or something like that that sets them back, um, then they kind of decrease their physical activity. They become more deconditioned. They're able to do less activity. Then they lose more bone. They do even less activity. And it becomes this kind of nasty cycle. So that's yeah. kind of my best guess on that front.
0: Yeah, that was kind of my thought. Like in ab, in the absence of one of these very strong risk factors, particularly like medical conditions Uh, Or medication and/or medications that, you know, have a significant substantial impact here is that I I think because the trajectory of sarcopenia is like you lose a little bit of muscle mass first and then your function like hits this threshold where you're like dang I'm so I'm, I'm not strong enough to actually you know function independently or complete all my activities of daily life or like I have limited mobility and it's like well you probably had a little these people probably had a little loss of muscle mass first and then that's while the bone loss is occurring secondarily. And then all of a sudden they're in this like double bubble situation. You got both of them and you're like, all right, well, we're going to have to stimulate both. Luckily the treatments like pretty similar. So uh, we'll get to that. But first I've, I alluded to earlier, this is a very common problem affects a lot of people and does cost, you know, everybody a a lot of resources. So uh, again, to reiterate logically, the fracture risk should be highest when the bone mass and therefore bone strength is the lowest. And in indeed this does seem to play out. There's a bimodal distribution. So two peaks, uh, one in the very young and one in the elderly in the young fractures occur most often in men. And it's mostly due to trauma. This is different than falling from like stand, just, you know, standing up straight or like some other atraumatic, you know, non, uh, uh, you know, violent sort of collision. For example, when I broke my femur, uh, right, you know, right at the greater trochanter, I was racing motocross and a dude landed on me <laughs> and just snapped my femur right there, uh, compared to somebody falling, um, an older individual falling, falling. So in the older population, it's primarily, uh, post-menopausal women. It does happen in men though. And the three major sites of the forearm, the hip, the vertebra, also the humerus, uh, is, in, is involved, Uh, As far as the data we have on, like, how often this happens, um, we do not have super, super recent data. So the latest stuff I could find that was pretty um, substantial was from 2004 Uh, There are 10 million Americans, for example, greater than 50 that have osteoporosis and an an additional 34 million are at risk. And if you look even through the latest guidelines and position stance, they're still using this data. So I'm not sure if there's like this massive update coming over the last, you know, 17 years, but we're working on older data. Although the trend for osteoporosis is going up. Um, It actually was decreasing, declining in the late nineties, but now it's kind of going up. And some of this seems to be due to um the lack lack of people getting treated uh, in any case again very common one in two women and one in five men greater than 50 will have an osteoporotic related fracture in the lifetime that's their lifetime risk um, as Austin said we call these things fragility fractures uh, even though we don't say that to patients there are about one and a half million maybe closer to two million um, in the United States alone um, again the one and a half million, that that number comes from older data, and then looks like most projections suggest we're closer to two million or greater uh, of these fragility fractures per year. And interestingly, of the population who gets these fractures, less than eighty percent of them uh, are being treated uh, for osteoporosis. Um, Austin alluded to the hip fracture being super common. Um, there are is some additional data here that I think is worth reviewing. So in nineteen ninety. There were 1.66 million hip fractures worldwide uh, and greater than 90% of them uh, occurred in those over the age of 50. It's about 70% of women, 30% of men. Uh, it does seem to increase the the rate, the incidence of these things tend to increase in the winter. Um uh, because most and most of them happen indoors so it's not like people are outside like skiing or something and falling again these are non-traumatic sort of injuries so it's usually just falling while they're inside their their house not slipping on ice or doing some sort of recreational activity Uh, those with hip fractures about eight percent of men and three percent of women greater the age greater than the age of 50 will require hospitalization um, which is a, a you know not something that you want an older individual to, uh, be exposed to. And they are, there are about 31,000, uh, deaths annually that occur within five to six months of having a hip fracture. And that elevated death risk actually persists up to about 10 years. Now there's obviously confounding factors where there's underlying exacerbate like disease processes contributing to the fracture, et cetera. But, um, I don't want people to think like, oh, well, you had the hip fracture, so you just treat it you'll be fine. Well, there's just additional problems associated with that, including a high level of uh, immobility afterwards, uh, people not being able to return to independent living, independent function, um, things of that nature. And economically, in the United States, we're spending about $18 billion a year on osteoporotic related fractures osteoporosis related fractures and that's projected to get closer to 30 billion in 2025 so almost doubling and a lot of that you know we have the aging population aging insufficiently active population um, etc etc so a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about after this is designed to not only reduce the risk of developing osteoporosis but also for those who you know get this diagnosis, how do they best like improve their trajectory so they don't end up in the hospital, and don't have well, one of these fractures and, you know, increase their risk of premature mortality. So uh, we're going to, we're getting into that part of the podcast now. Who needs to get screened for this? Who, who does not have any evidence of osteoporosis right now needs to go get a DEXA scan or see their, their, their physician and say, Hey, I think I want to be screened for osteoporosis.
2: Yeah. So, you know, just to review the definition of screening is when we perform a certain kind of diagnostic or medical test on somebody who has no signs or symptoms of a disease, somebody who looks fine, feels fine, no problems, but we're going to test them anyway, with the idea that we might find something that if it is treated, uh, can kind of alter their health trajectory uh, from there in a cost effective fashion. So in the US, um, the majority of groups that provide guidelines on this recommend bone mineral density, assessment using something like a DEXA scan in postmenopausal women who are 65 years and older, regardless of whether they have any other risk factors or even if they have no risk factors for osteoporosis. For people who have numerous risk factors, you know, the, the doctor and patient can kind of work together and decide if it's worth performing screening earlier in life for somebody who has those risk factors. So if they're on, you know, high amounts of prednisone to treat another condition or something like that, that can accelerate their their risk or or other things that might justify earlier screening. But in general, 65 and older for postmenopausal, uh, postmenopausal women is kind of a, a generally accepted guideline. There aren't really, there's no real consensus on screening men. In other words, in, in which men who look fine, feel fine, have no signs or symptoms of a condition, um, which again, osteoporosis doesn't typically cause any symptoms. So it's not like if you develop this, you're going to have like achier bones or joints or something like that. It does not cause any of those symptoms until it might cause a fracture. Um, but there's not really any consensus on screening men. There are some groups that recommend men over 70, others men over 65, others say we don't really have any evidence to screen any men in general, um, unless there are specific risk factors that would make you look for it. So um, I would just refer back to some of those things that we mentioned uh, up top. And you know, for for uh, a man that might uh, be somebody who you would consider screening. So if I had somebody who had had maybe untreated severe Hypogonadism, or like mm-hmm. severe low testosterone that had not been treated for years, um, then that's somebody who I may look at because that's something that can that can lead to that issue. Or again, somebody who is on um, you know a fair amount of a medicine like prednisone or androgen deprivation therapy to treat prostate cancer or other things that might justify. It. Or of course, as we said, a man who presents with something that would be medically considered a quote unquote fragility fracture. Although again, once you're at that point, it's not screening anymore. It's kind of more of a, of a diagnostic, uh, a evaluation for somebody who showed up with, with an issue. Um, so there's not really honestly a ton of good evidence for just screening for osteoporosis in general. A lot of this is just expert recommendation. Um, and a lot of these, this consensus has, has kind of been arrived at by these organizations
0: yeah i think it's kind of interesting because when you you look at the data on these fragility fractures like who it's happening to and like how many of those folks have been screened or treated and you're like wow 80 percent of the folks have been treated or screened if you combine those numbers together you're immediately your knee-jerk reaction is like we gotta screen more we gotta screen more so we can find more so we can treat more um but these consensus statements have arrived from some imperfect data where the, they were screening different people, populations of folks, and then tracking outcomes over longer periods of time. And it didn't really seem to make a difference and it cost a lot more money and there were additional risks. I mean, it's a non-significant dose of radiation as well. So um, yeah, we kind of unpack this more in the screening podcast, like just because you're testing more is not always better. You want to test, if, you, if you're if you going to test for something, you need to be able to alter their trajectory in a reliable fashion and a cost-effective fashion as well. Um, And I, you know, I don't want people to think like, we're just these two like penny pinchers and we're super frugal. It's like, well, if the test itself doesn't improve outcome, we just, we waste all the money. If you do that at a population level, uh, you're in trouble. But, you know, I could see the, I could see somebody who's got a family history of like osteoporosis with, you know, some potential risk factor either chronic medical condition or whatever saying yeah and and approaching these age age kind of benchmarks i could see them getting screened but you can't recommend that on a population level without uh some very large huevos (laughs) because the the data the data is just not there right so at that point you're just saying you're, you're you know you're making a recommendation without enough evidence to confidently claim it
2: yeah, so that's kind of where the current screening guidelines are for postmenopausal women over 65 without, uh, you know, regardless of risk factors. And then for uh, men in general or women who are younger than that, then you would look for the, the presence of other risk factors to justify screening that person. And again, this is mostly based on kind of
0: expert recommendations. Yep, just people talking. Uh, okay, so let's say you have somebody uh, who was screened and they have, it looks like osteoporosis based on their... DEXA scan. What sort of treatments are available to them uh, in order to prevent and reduce the risk of a osteoporotic osteoporosis related fracture?
2: Yeah, uh, we have several options. I, I do think that before you jump into that, it's worth at least mentioning that the preference would be to prevent osteoporosis from developing altogether. And the main way to do that would be for the person to achieve a much higher peak bone mass earlier in life, which of course involves loading their skeleton and ensuring that they have good nutritional status, which means that people in particular, these women who will eventually become postmenopausal women, uh, um, they should probably train. Uh, If they train and maintain good nutritional status, then they will achieve higher peak bone mass early in life. And then even more preferentially, if they should continue to train consistently (laughs) for a long time, then that would result in them decreasing the rate of bone loss. So both of these things would be very protective against uh, the development of osteoporosis in the first place. And if they still happen to develop it, if they still, for some reason, or maybe they had some of these other risk factors, maybe some other things that were not within their control. If they had trained their whole life, they would likely have a higher amount of muscle mass and muscle strength that would decrease their risk of falls, which is, again, the biggest thing when it comes to the risk of uh, a fracture in general. But fast-forwarding, let's say that this person does uh, develop osteoporosis and it was detected on something like a DEXA scan. The overarching goal of our treatment is to uh, improve their bone quality such that we reduce their risk of fractures. The side goal to that is, of course, reducing their risk of falls. This is worth emphasizing because, again, people will tend to uh, kind of assume that the diagnosis of osteoporosis and their bone mineral density, their T-score or their Z-score on their DEXA scan are the same thing. And they will obsess over what's happening to these numbers, which the numbers do have value, but it's also worth pointing out that DEXA scans are imperfect. You can have changes in bone mineral density of anywhere from three to six percent at the hip or two to four percent at the spine. And that can just be test error. It can be precision error of the test. You would prefer that a person get their DEXA scan done on the same machine each time, uh, ideally. uh, But there's still, again, tests are imperfect. There's going to be some some variation there just from test to test. And so you want to you know, make sure that we have appropriate perspective. We've zoomed out. We're not saying that everything that matters here is just you know a couple decimal points on your on your uh, bone mineral density. Rather, what we really care about, because you can't feel a difference in your bone density. Rather, what we care about is preventing a fracture um, and reducing your risk of falls. Uh, so that's kind of uh, uh, really important for people to to understand, so that our emphasis and our focus is in the right place: preventing fractures and preventing falls. Um, And the main interventions that you will hear people uh, discuss in this realm are going to be supplemental things like calcium, uh, which of course can ideally come from the diet and vitamin D. And the general idea is if somebody has low levels of these things, if they're insufficient on these things and has osteoporosis, then supplementing them or getting them through the diet to get them back up towards kind of sufficiency on that nutrient front um, is estimated to reduce the risk of fracture by somewhere upwards of 10%. I think that might be a little optimistic, but that's kind of the, the common figure that's that's bandied about. And we will um, definitely get into the details of that in a moment. Um, the other uh, uh, treatment option that you will uh, uh, hear discussed in the realm of osteoporosis is medications. Um, there are medications that can prevent the breakdown uh, of bone, or that can promote actually building up of more bone. These medicines have the potential to reduce the risk of fracture by upwards of forty or fifty percent at the lo- quote unquote long bones. Those are like your your thigh bone, your upper arm bone, things like that, and upwards of seventy percent reduction in fract- fracture risk at your spine. So these medicines do have pretty substantial uh, potential to reduce somebody's risk of having a fracture, and. There are some tools that we would use to kind of weigh what's the person's risk and how much do they stand to benefit from this medicine. The the tool that I would recommend is something called the Mayo Clinic Osteoporosis Shared Decision Aid. Um, And this is something that doctors and patients can go through together to show what somebody's risk of a fracture is and how much somebody actually stands to benefit from a medicine to help them make a decision for themselves. is, Is this worthwhile to them? And then finally, the last major category is going to be lifestyle things and exercise. So alcohol and tobacco, we mentioned our risk factors for this, so we'd want to get rid of those. And then load-bearing exercise, You know, we have to, again, load the skeleton, this these adaptable bones to get them to build back up. And we'll get into the details of that as well. So that's kind of the overview that you'll hear most of the time is the calcium, vitamin D piece, medicines, lifestyle stuff.
0: Yep. And I, I just wanted to correct earlier. Uh, I said that 90% of these hip fractures. So again, 1990s, 1.6 million hip fractures worldwide. I said 90% occur in greater than those greater than 50. It's, it's actually much higher. It's like 98%. Um, but 90% of them occurred due to falls, which is something, a repeated theme that falls are like one of these biggest risk factors, uh, for, for hip fractures and and fractures and other anatomical sites. Really, I just wanted to say that so I didn't have to go back and edit that out and like sub in Mm -hmm. a new voice. And so, yeah. Uh, all right. So I'm going to kick off this lifestyle intervention, uh, section, um, mainly on calcium and vitamin D, uh, the data, when you review it, they continually say that calcium and vitamin D, um, adequate calcium and vitamin D intake can reduce fracture risk by about 10%. And I think people are going to like, if they saw that in passing, particularly as it's phrased in some of these papers, they might think, oh, well, I need to take calcium and vitamin D to reduce my fracture risk by 10%. And that is not necessarily what this means. If you have inadequate calcium uh, intake and you have osteoporosis, then taking these two things or you're at high risk for os- an osteoporosis-related fracture, then taking these two things together in adequate amounts to make you no longer inadequate in your calcium intake can reduce your fracture risk. But if you have at abnormal calcium intake, you don't need to take calcium and it's not going to further reduce your risk. Taking more calcium is going to be potentially, uh, increase your risk of developing kidney stones, cardiovascular disease and stroke, even though the literature there is very controversial. Uh, but yeah, intakes like very high intakes of calcium in addition to other hyper related things. But again, controversial. The point is you don't need to supplement cal- calcium on top of on top of a normal calcium intake. And just as an aside, the average, the, like the median intake for both children and adults in the United States is that we get more than enough calcium in our diet. Um, so in any case, lifelong adequate calcium intake is necessary for the acquisition of peak bone mass and the subsequent maintenance of bone health. The skeleton contains about 99% of the body's calcium stores. And then, yeah, when the dietary intake is inadequate, you basically take leach, pull, Otherwise, take calcium from your bone tissue to maintain your blood levels of calcium at a normal level. That's why a blood level of calcium doesn't really tell you anything about (laughs) are you getting enough calcium um, in your diet. It's going to look normal most of the time unless you have some other disease, in which case if it's the first time you ever saw that, well, surprise, surprise. Now you got to figure that out. But if it's not the first time you ever saw that, you don't really know I'm at a higher risk for for osteoporosis due to my calcium intake. Don't really know. So you'd actually need to do like a dietary review of somebody's uh, intake of calcium. So in any case, the current recommendation is that people get about a thousand milligrams of calcium per day uh, if they're aged four to eight. And then if you're age nine to 18, it's 1300 milligrams per day. Uh, Again, there's no evidence that calcium intake in excess of these amounts confers additional bone strength, bone mineral density, bone mineral content, et cetera. And again, there's controversial scientific literature suggesting that higher intakes may be no bueno. Uh, when you look at all the data on calcium supplementation, effectively, the relationship is that if people have inadequate calcium dietary intake, then supplementing calcium is useful for reducing the risk of fracture and increasing the risk of or increasing uh, the rate of uh, bone mineral content deposition and bone min- overall bone mineral density. But again, this is not the case for most individuals in a developed country particularly the United States as far as dietary sources of calcium we're talking about seeds it's like poppy seeds sesame seeds chia seeds in one tablespoon you get 10% of the RDA uh dairy obviously uh, most people are aware that there's a ton of calcium in there but did you know that one cup of milk has 25% of your recommended daily allowance uh for calcium that's very high yogurt has about the same one cup has about 25% of your RDA and the lower fat yogurt actually has more calcium. It has more. I don't know why I try to find out. Cause I thought it'd be some additional nuance that people are going to take to a bar and impress somebody it, later is on. Is it like a,
2: is it like a per hundred calorie thing? I mean, that would explain it
0: per serving per serving. Yeah. yeah so yeah. not even, yeah, Maybe. I was like, Oh, it's just energy. Oh, cool. And yeah. similar, similar for fat free Greek yogurt, although the full fat Greek yogurt has a little bit less, but again, when you remove fat from the deal, apparently there's more calcium, there, uh, canned fish. If you're a sardine or canned sa- uh, salmon kind of person, one can gives you about a third of your daily RDA. Uh, beans and lentils per cup have about twenty percent of your RDA for calcium. Almonds, one ounce, which is about twenty-three separate almonds, gives you six percent of the RDA. And last but not certainly not least, whey protein. Did you know the whey protein comes from dairy? Well, now you do. If you didn't before, one scoop, one scoop has about twelve percent of your RDA. So there are a lot of options here provided that you have access resources and availability to purchase these foods and consume these foods as part of your health promoting dietary pattern. But if you can't, for whatever reason, uh, supplements are an option. Supplements are an option. So there's calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, the calcium carbonate
2: should probably be taken with food. The calcium citrate can be done without food.
0: It'd be difficult to recommend people taking supplemental calcium without knowing their dietary pattern first. Effectively, I, I'm of the opinion that people in general who are maintaining their body weight, who don't have a history of like malabsorptive disease or gastrointestinal disease, um, and have what in the med, you know doctors would say good PO, they're able to eat um, normally. Probably not calcium deficient, and so at that point, supplementing calcium really isn't you know doing anything. People would say, well, we're preventing any potential risk here. It's like, well, just review their diet. Just look at their diet because you want to look at their diet anyways, because the sarcopenia is probably all, they're probably also at risk or maybe have that anyway. And you got to look at what's their protein intake, for example, uh, just as an aside now, because we mentioned protein, both whey protein and dietary protein intake being important for, uh, sarcopenia and then also being a good source of calcium. Uh, there's some thought that increasing your dietary protein intake is going to reduce your bone mineral density, reduce your bone mineral content by leaching calcium which is silly because there are a lot of protein sources that have a lot of calcium in it. And actually, when you look at the data on high-protein diets versus low-protein diets, high-protein diets seem to lead to elevated bone mineral density and bone mineral content, provided the person is adequately taking in enough calcium in their diet as well. Some of this thought is due to increased lean body mass seen in these studies because increased lean body mass is very tightly correlated to bone mineral density. That was a bit. I got in trouble in residency a few times because people were like, "Did you tell them to supplement calcium?" And I was like, "No, why?" Yeah. <laughs> but because because the thought is like, well, they they should to reduce risk. I'm like, well, if they're if they you know, inadequately taking enough calcium, but I'm not going to tell somebody just take calcium if they're not inadequate and it doesn't look like they're inadequate. Anyway, okay, moving on. Vitamin D. So vitamin D plays a major role in calcium absorption and bone metabolism. We did a vitamin D podcast if you're more interested on like all the cool things, and interesting things that vitamin D does. Uh, The intake recommendations are again given via the RDA, which stands for recommended dietary allowance, which is the average level of intake sufficient to meet the nutrient requirements of 97 and 98% of all individuals. Um, So for vitamin D, there are age-specific recommendations, usually in the 400 to 800 IU or international unit per day range. The National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends a higher intake of 800 to 1,000 international units of vitamin D per day for adults aged 50 and older. Uh, The Institute of Medicine recommends even higher intakes for older individuals. There are many different recommendations here, but the number I think you should remember numbers that I think you should remember are 400 to 800 international units per day. Uh, there are plenty of foods that contain high levels of vitamin D. So fatty fish like trout, salmon, tuna, mackerel, um, A ser- one serving of these gives you about 70 to 80% of your RDA of uh, vitamin D. Also, uh, vegetarian v- or vegan foods like mushrooms or mushroom powder gives you a different type of vitamin D. It's vitamin D2. And per serving, it gives you almost half of what you need per day. And if you're an egg person, if you're an egg guy, I'm a big egg guy, one egg gives you 6% of your RDA. Uh, And in addition to all of these naturally occurring sources, uh, dietary sources of vitamin D, there's a lot of foods that have been fortified. Uh, There are fortification guidelines for things like milk, milk alternatives, cereals, juices, yogurt, infant formula. And all of that was designed to reduce the risk of rickets, which we talked about, uh, and osteomalacia that we talked about in the vitamin D podcast. So what does the evidence show about vit- for vitamin D supplementation and reducing the risk of osteoporosis and specifically osteoporosis related fractures? Um, you just look at the R- the randomized controlled trials and about half of them show a slight benefit uh, for bone mineral density compared to placebo. The other half shows no effect. Uh, as far as fracture risk, there's some evidence um, for vitamin D supplementation um, in older individuals that are community dwelling. Um, but overall, again, if you would listen to our vitamin D podcast before this, you would know that the data is not really great for vitamin D supplementation and osteoporosis. The main point about vitamin D supplementation um, is that if people are going to start on medications to treat osteoporosis, that has either been screened for and we're like trying to reduce a risk, or they've had this, you know, fragility. F- fragility fracture. And so they're now subsequently treating this low bone mineral density, then vitamin D levels need to be completely normal, um, prior to treatment. That's just like part and parcel because the things won't, the medications won't work as well if the vitamin D level is tanked. So, um, again, just to reiterate, if you didn't listen to our vitamin D podcast before listening to this, the problem with vitamin D levels is that vitamin D levels go up, uh, with all inflammatory uh, conditions, which is basically every disease process we know that's known to man. Um, and so they're altered in these, in these, the disease processes in a way that makes the sort of vitamin D level non-specific to what level of vitamin D do you have in the body and how is it functioning? And so that's like the underlying point. And then when you go look at actual evidence on, hey, if people are taking a vitamin D supplement compared to not taking a placebo and they have the same level of vitamin D going into the study and they have the same like medical conditions, what happens? Effectively, nothing. Effectively, nothing. I just summarized an hour long podcast on vitamin D <laughs> with that line. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, there's problems with the test. There's problems with inter-individual variation in vitamin D levels. There's problems with underlying medical conditions. And then the clinical outcome data on vitamin D is very, very weak. And so if somebody is telling you to take vitamin D to reduce the risk of anything not bone related, I my, I cannot roll my eyes in the back of my head further <laughs> because, because it, the data is just not there. If it was, it would be cool. Uh, it's just not there for for most things for bone uh, related outcomes, particularly fracture risk. Again, if somebody has low vitamin D, and they have osteoporosis, they should probably replace their vitamin D levels, even though the evidence on fracture risk um, is not great for those individuals who are not receiving additional medications, just something needs to that needs to be shored up before people take actual medications.
2: Yeah, I think I think for for people who I'm planning to recommend medications that I'm going to be real, you know, strong on that recommendation of getting their levels up for people who are not, but who do have osteoporosis. Um, I think that, you know, the potential theoretical benefits, even if small, um, are probably greater than the risks of, you know, low to moderate dose supplementation, so I don't really tend to have too much of a concern over that. For people who are just otherwise generally healthy, community-dwelling people who don't have any known history of osteoporosis or something like that, uh, if if somebody were to claim that these individuals could reduce their risk of developing osteoporosis by taking a supplement, I would be pretty skeptical of that. So that's kind yes. of my summary.
0: <laughs> yes, very skeptical. And then also a little annoyed because I'm like, guys, where's the data? Because the existing data does not support that. Yeah. Anyway, okay, we talked about dairy. Uh, the wrap-up for calcium and vitamin D is that th- the data suggests that taking calcium and vitamin D, if you have inadequate intake, can reduce the fracture risk by about 10%. But that supposes an inadequate intake, and that's a big if. Okay, let's move on to the medications. This, you know, we are shills for big pharma. Uh, Got to get those checks. So <laughs> what kind of medications are we talking about, and then what sort of impact do they have on, like, fracture risk?
2: Yeah. So just to to review, there are kind of two broad categories. Um, The the issue that we have with osteoporosis, again, is this uh, generally low peak bone mass that somebody has reached, accelerated loss of bone over the course of life. And we have medicines that can actually uh, kind of block or slow down that rate of breakdown. Um, And some patients who are, you know, you could consider as like hyper responders might actually show an increase in bone density when that breakdown process is halted, um, because there might be some other cells present that can contribute to building up some bone on their own. Um, So that's one category. Common examples of this would be called the bisphosphonate class of medications. These are things like alendronate, um, resendronate, zolendronate, a bunch of words that rhyme like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of, you know, specific considerations with these medicines that I think are probably beyond the scope of this podcast. Cause it'd be more directed towards people who are in a position to prescribe them, but that's one class. There are a couple others that are more related to, uh, they're, they're called anabolics. Um, they're not necessarily anabolics in the way that maybe some of our audience is thinking in terms of like, the cool ones, as you say, the, the kind that'll turn you into Ronnie Coleman or something, uh, uh Ryan before all the surgeries. Um, But uh, these tend to directly promote bone building rather than preventing the breakdown of bone. There are similarly a whole bunch of uh, caveats and really important things to know about uh, your patient and, and prescribing these. Some of them are, you know, have even more special considerations because it's like you can take them and you'll build up build up some bone mass, but if you miss a dose or if you stop them, then you'll get even more rapid bone loss and you may end up further behind than where you started. Um, so these are things that are really important to to discuss with uh, patients when it comes to making decisions. And so ultimately, you know, um, every medication, every medical treatment has potential benefits, has potential you know harms or or, or adverse effects, and these are the kind of things that we weigh. I think that for people who are at sufficient risk of a fracture, which is most people who have osteoporosis, um, then the benefits of these medicines often outweigh the risks, uh, potentially very significantly, uh, especially for people who are at very high fracture risk. This is not a situation where I would, um, you know, if I had very advanced osteoporosis, where I would say, no, I'm going to go all natty you know, calcium supplement my way out of this, because that is unlikely to be successful. Um, rather, I would probably be in favor of a combination approach of the, you know, the, the calcium vitamin D piece, the medication piece, and the training piece. Um, I'd be aiming at to attack this from, from all angles. And so to review, these medicines in general can reduce fracture risk from upwards of 40 or 50% at some of our long bones, hip, arms, things like that, upwards of 70% at the spine, which is, again, quite significant as far as a risk reduction um, in uh, when it comes to fractures, which are the major complication that we're worried about. Again, a hip fracture is something that when I hear that somebody has had an osteoporotic hip fracture, I am very, very concerned, not just for their hip, but for them surviving in, in general. There's a high risk of death associated with these things, which is why we care a lot about trying to prevent them. And so if I'm working through the decision-making process, again, I'd refer folks to this uh, osteoporosis decision aid from the Mayo Clinic. It's actually quite nice, offers graphical, you know, pictorial illustration of what somebody's risk is. So like, Hey, out of a hundred people like you, um, you know, this many would uh, be expected to experience a fracture over, you know, this time period without treatment. And then with treatment, here are how many would be prevented from having a fracture and people, and it can help people make this decision of, is this potential benefit worth the downsides, be it cost or, you know, very small risk of, you know, potentially more significant side effects and, and, and the inconvenience of taking a medicine in general and, and things like that. So that's kind of like the the short story on meds.
0: When is the Mayo Clinic coming up with like a COVID vaccine
2: decision? Oh maker? boy! <laughs> <laughs> they have a couple of these. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has some nice uh, patient kind of shared decision making aids. I've used their one on statins with patients quite a bit, and they also have one for antidepressants. Um, they may have others that I'm not aware of, but those are kind of some of the main ones that I've that I've used with folks. So,
0: okay, I just think the graphic, I think the graphics are cool. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so talked about the meds, talked about calcium, vitamin D. We also referred earlier to some other lifestyle changes like decreasing or eliminating alcohol and tobacco use, particularly if on the alcohol end, if it's high, so greater than like two or three drinks a day. Uh, and now since this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we got to talk about exercise. We got to talk about barbells. So when we talk about uh, either preventing osteoporosis, so like primary prevention, so people don't get osteoporosis in the first place, and or are treating uh, people with diagnosed osteoporosis, what kind of exercise are we actually talking about? We talk about water aerobics, we talk about pilots, which is <laughs> street speak for Pilates. What what are we what are we talking about here? No.
2: Uh, One of the things about muscle strength training to make your muscles bigger and stronger that we have talked about on some of our other programming podcasts is that muscles can respond to a very wide range of loading intensities. Uh, People can train with relatively low loads, and if they take their sets far enough, train close enough to failure, they can get still muscles stronger, muscles bigger. Bones are a little bit different in that they seem to uniquely require more what are called higher strain rates. They need to, they actually require a little bit higher intensity of loading. And this isn't like you must do one rep maxes for, for, uh, for, you know, improving bone quality. Um, But I, but I do think that if, you know, whereas from a muscle standpoint, maybe you could take a set at like 30% of one rep max and do, you know, you know, within uh, an RPE eight set. Yeah. You can get some hypertrophy out of that. I am less confident that you will get as good of a bone response. I don't know that this has been directly studied at that particular intensity, but I am less confident in that compared to higher intensity interventions. And this is coming from, you know, of the training or exercise intervention studies for osteoporosis. If people go out wading through the literature on this, you will come away um, uh, disappointed because many, many, many of the trials on exercise interventions for osteoporosis are negative in that they show no effect. Um, but when you look at the intensity of the intervention, they tend to be low intensity, maybe moderate intensity. And when I say low intensity, it might be like walking, or it might be like very, very low resistance band curls or something like that. And I'm like, look, I really care about this person's like hip Hip girdle, you know their their lumbar vertebral uh, bone density because those are the things where a frac. Like I would prefer to prevent a fracture at the wrist, sure, but the proximal muscles, meaning the hip girdle, the shoulder girdle, the spine, those are the things that play such important roles for physical independence, uh, mobility, being able to do things for yourself. That hey, we need to load this area if we want it to get stronger. And so higher intensity interventions, you can sort of understand from the traditional, very mechanical view of osteoporosis as like fragile bones, brittle bones, people are going to be apprehensive about this. And, you know, expectedly, probably a lot of researchers and maybe some review boards and things like that might be hesitant to approve a higher intensity intervention for osteoporosis, but that's been happening more and more in recent years. So we do have some more evidence of higher intensity loading for patients with osteoporosis, even... Some studies, like our one of our favorites on this topic, the the Lift More trial was the, the name of it. But they took women, postmenopausal women with osteoporosis, upwards of about a quarter of whom actually had already had a fracture before, and they had them doing squats and presses and deadlifts with barbells, um, which is you know highly unusual for uh, these kind of these kind of studies, and and showed some benefit in in bone mineral density. Um, And so to summarize the answer to your original question is we need to load the skeletons of these individuals, just like uh, somebody, you know, you wouldn't tell somebody, hey, you shouldn't load your, you know, your weak muscles because they'll tear, we tend to not, you know, uh, uh, blow, you know, put all, put all the focus on the underlying pathology here of osteoporosis and say, you can't load your, your bones because they're brittle or fragile or prone to breaking. Cause we know, again, they're living tissues. They will respond to the stresses we put upon them. We just need to put enough of a stress to drive that adaptive response. So we need, uh, you know, probably higher intensities for these, uh, for these individuals.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think since muscles and bones follow a like similar trajectory, the way I envision it, and some of the stuff I've been finding when I've been trying to answer the question, like, how strong do I actually need to get to promote health, <laughs> it's, which is, you'd think that'd be an easier question to answer, but uh, alas, it is, it is complex. Um I think since they follow a similar trajectory, I would basically train the bones like I'm training the muscles for strength, right? And so when I'm limiting like the programming discussion about like, well, how would you best train for strength? And you go look at the evidence and yep, there's this, you know, relationship or threshold related relationship between training intensity, so loading and strength development. And the best data we have on there puts that threshold about 60%. And so, and when you're discussing like moderate or low intensity training, you're talking about training. Below that, far below people's, you know, sixty percent of their one RM, and so I, I think. Uh, that most of the training you know very similar to your thing your what you wrote here is that you know 60 80 percent of someone's one rm should comprise most of their training and that's just how i would train somebody for strength as well i think the proximity to failure you know how far like how hard should the set feel yeah you could do rp7 rp8 sets like the sort of mac you know top end there and be fine doesn't mean people need to go to failure so i don't want people to misunderstand this like oh we need more strain so people need to go to failure to get better like bone results and it's like no just the loading needs to be sufficient to drive the process, right. Mechanic growth factor release sort of all these other, you know, uh, uh, hormones that, um, you know, increase in response to exercise that have an effect on the bone. And I think 60, 80% of a one RM, uh, is a pretty good range there. D- could you go higher than that? Sure. But I don't know that you need to do that for bone health. I think you do that for one RM strength development. And if you happen to go above that, like, cool. But you know, if granny wants to do just sets of eight or 10, that's fine. Take it RP eight. That, that she's going to be above that threshold, right? That sort of strength threshold. Uh, my main question for you, and and yeah, it'd be cool if everyone lifted barbells, mainly because then barbell medicine would get more hits on the search engine and you know, just make the make this whole thing go a lot easier for us. But do you think that there's gonna be could be a substantial effect on people's bone mineral density, bone mineral content, and ultimately fracture risk? by just doing machine-based machine, machine based exercises. 100%.
2: I am confident that there would be if that is trained in a consistent fashion and at sufficient intensities. I don't actually care how the loading is delivered to the skeleton, just that it mm. is delivered. <laughs> yeah. And my preference, if I had to pick, obviously people have limited time, limited resources, limited attention, limited motivation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the areas that I would want to focus on again would be things like the more proximal or closer to the center muscles, like your up your, your shoulders, hips and spine, uh, because again, those are the most kind of relevant for physical independence and mobility. I would be not spending a ton of time doing wrist curls or, you know, uh, you know, ankle dorsiflexion exercises, particularly if somebody was, um, you know, had limited resources to train. So, so that kind of more proximal musculature is kind of where I'm going to be focusing my loading and whatever it takes, be it, be it machines, be it kettlebell, be it dumbbell, be it barbell, whatever the case is. Even if there is some, you know, somebody gets introduced to resistance with bands, if they are progressed um, in a fashion and pushed, you know, in terms of intensity, and ultimately, I would like to get some real external load on the person, those would be my, my preferences. Again, we're not saying, you know, I agree that that intensity range, say that like 60 to 80% one rep max is where I spend most of my time. It's probably where you spend most of your time, uh, where a lot of our athletes do too. Um, That's not where you're necessarily going to put this person on day one who is untrained or has never lifted a weight. You're going to treat them like beginners. You have time to to work through this process, but that's going to be my goal is to kind of get them there um, over time as they build comfort, as they build confidence, as they, um, you know, just adapt.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree. I mean, but you know, even on day one, you're not testing their one RM, so you'll never know for sure but if they I just do don't want ten- people to overthink this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Like I like the feeling scale. It's been validated yeah. in the literature. You know, you should work <laughs> all the major muscle groups through a relatively large range of motion at an intensity that feels kind of uncomfortable. And I think, you know, in this context, my rep scheme would be between six and 12 reps to make sure that the actual intensity, the load is high enough to, to do the damn thing that we want it to do. And, um, yeah, the major muscle groups is where I'd spend most of my time at. And Uh, the last, the the last
2: thing I'd mention here though, just before we get to our, our questions is again, I want to reiterate the bone mineral density thing on your DEXA scan. That is not the only metric of how this person is doing. Uh, People will tend to focus on it a ton. And so I could envision a scenario where somebody starts lifting weights. Maybe they improve their diet. Maybe they start some supplements. um, They progress their, their exercise. They're feeling actually quite a lot stronger. They're able to do more in their daily life. And then they go and they get a DEXA scan done. And it shows maybe a pretty similar bone mineral density. And they're like, oh, that didn't do anything. It's like, A, uh, maybe without all of this, it would have decreased even more quickly. You don't know that. Uh, B, there is some error in the test. Remember those percentages that I mentioned earlier. So maybe it did go, maybe it has started to increase at a, you know, a, 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 an amount that is below the detection threshold or within an error bar on the test. And then finally bone mineral density is not the only metric that matters. We want to prevent fractures and by doing, we, we want to do that most importantly by preventing falls. And so if you are stronger, more physically functional, able to, kind of control your body through space and in your environment, um, I have a strong feeling I'd be quite confident in that situation that your fall risk has decreased. And if you're less likely to fall, you're less likely to fracture, even if you do still have some degree of osteoporosis. So just keeping the picture big here rather than focusing
0: on the BMD alone. Yeah, it may be that, you know, again, the muscle mass decreases before the bone mineral density, and then I would ex- almost expect the opposite relationship, like the muscle mass is likely to go up, muscle strength certainly likely to go up prior to the bone mineral density. The, the last thing on the resistance training before we have pop in these questions, yes, I do think that there's likely an increased benefit from a fall risk and an overall function risk if people do free standing, ex- free weight exercises I don't know how much, but I just think that balance component is useful. Although isolated balance training that is not intense enough <laughs> doesn't seem to have much of an effect here. Uh, yeah. I just you know, that's my bias, and uh, yeah. So while we're making stuff up, we can just add that in there. All right, we have some questions now. These are questions that I thought up. I I, I did a throwback Thursday to a, my younger, dumber days. Things that I may uh, you have assumed about osteoporosis and try to phrase them in a way that will be generally applicable. So Austin, you know, look, if I'm on osteoporosis, if I'm on treatment, if I'm taking and taking some of these drugs that you mentioned, the ones that end with Nate, for example, for, for my osteoporosis, what's going to happen to my gains Am I just no gains. Like what's the deal? Uh, no, they
2: will not wreck your gains. There's no impact on uh, strength adaptation or any of that kind of stuff. And um, given the risk reduction that you may be enjoying, say upwards of a 50%, maybe upwards of a 70% risk reduction of a fracture, um, you know what does wreck your gains is uh, having a fracture that might land you in a hospital and increase your risk of death. So not a concern.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think in general, if you don't have the fracture, you're able to train more consistently, productively over a longer period of <laughs> time. Would, uh, would that read?
2: would intuit well.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, How should, how should somebody who has osteoporosis train and how is this different than normal? Uh,
2: So, I mean, their goals are likely to be a bit different. um, I think if I had to guess from having seen and talked with and managed a lot of uh, individuals who have osteoporosis, you know, typically uh, at least upfront at first, their typical goals are not necessarily to go out onto uh, the powerlifting platform. Some of them may actually get around to that at some point. But up front, that's not the typical conversation, and so you know perhaps the specificity with which they train uh, would uh, probably be lower than somebody who has a very hyper-focused kind of goal that they are are training towards. But otherwise, again, we want to train most, or if not all, of their major muscle groups, as you said, through a relatively long range of motion. Um, I like the emphasis on, the, again, those proximal muscle groups, uh, shoulders, hips, spine, um, and load them at a sufficient intensity for ideally both muscle adaptation and bone adaptation. And so if you're in that intensity range that we've been describing, or if you're working towards that intensity range that we've been describing, then you're on your way. So
0: it doesn't need to be all that different otherwise. Yep. I like it. You're at that strength threshold, carry on, wide variety of exercises that maximize adherence. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. So look, man, we talked all about osteoporosis for the last hour and 10 minutes, but I've heard about osteopenia. What's the difference? What do? Uh, So remember on DEXA scans that measure your bone mineral
2: density, which is just kind of one component of the overall picture of osteoporosis, um, the statistical numbers that come out basically describe what is your bone mineral density either compared to an age-matched Kind of person of your same uh, uh, you know age, sex, demographic, or compared to a young healthy person. Those are like the the Z and the T scores, respectively. And those numbers come on a spectrum. And so um, the more negative this is num- numbered in terms of standard deviations away from the the mean. This is kind of statistical uh, uh, nerd language. Uh, but the lower those numbers go, the more advanced the uh, decrease in bone. Uh, density is. And so osteoporosis is when you get to negative 2.5 or less than that. So like more negative 2.5, negative 3, negative 3.5, etc. Um, or you can have a milder version. It doesn't quite meet that 2.5 kind of cutoff. And again, cutoffs in, you know, diagnostic medical tests are not magic. They are not laws. They are somewhat arbitrarily chosen. Um, you know, of course, there's some information that goes into making a decision of where do we put a cutoff but perhaps way back when whoever decided this could have said I'm going to call osteoporosis when you're minus two or or worse or I'm going to not call it osteoporosis until you're minus three or worse these are kind of arbitrary cutoffs but we do need to establish cutoffs in order to make diagnoses using these tests and so the osteopenia cutoff which is again just a milder version it's almost like you're kind of on your way towards osteoporosis potentially even though not everybody is guaranteed to get there is in this range of a minus one. To minus 2.5. So almost there, but not quite. Um, and again, it may progress to that. It may not. All in all, if this is detected, I would have the same recommendations for for people um, in terms of training and their nutritional habits to, to um, improve their bone quality, decrease their fall risk, um, and decrease their risk of progression.
0: Yeah. Do uh, you think the person who coined the term sarcopenia just missed the boat? Like he should have had like a preliminary stage, like sarcoposis <laughs> and then like, us. <laughs> like well because then we could identify it earlier right and then maybe i uh, guess like, yeah that's the idea could just be like cachexia <laughs> that's right. yes exactly uh okay next question so look man if peak bone mass is really determined earlier on in life if i'm older why should i exercise what's the deal uh
2: well there are numerous reasons to exercise even outside of the range of bone mass um However, yes, although uh, peak bone mass is typically achieved earlier in life, there is no stage of life whereby a living, breathing human uh, stops adapting to stimuli. The hallmark of a living creature is the ability to adapt. And so if we load your skeleton, it will adapt in some fashion. Even if that adaptation is such that you will decrease the rate of bone loss, that is still desirable. And again, all those other non-bone effects, non-bone benefits on the muscles, physical function, ability, decreasing your fall risk, decreasing your fracture risk from there. Again, not to mention things like your cardiovascular health, metabolic health, all this blood pressure reduction, blood lipid, all this other stuff that we can recommend exercise for. Um, But again, there's no stage of life, no period of
0: life where you will not adapt unless you are dead. Yeah. The reason why I wanted to put this question in here is like, yeah, like 40 to 60% of your adult bone mass is accrued during the adolescent years. Um, And I want people to take away from this podcast that there are things that you can do to modify not only your trajectory, but also your family members trajectory. And I think we focused a lot on like older populations, but if you have children or younger nieces and nephews or whatever else, start them young. I mean, they you, they, they should be act, you know, actively participating in resistance training and aerobic training, the current guidelines or that, you know, youth over the age of four should be part regularly participating in physical activity, including resistance training multiple times per week. What does resistance training look for? Like, you know, a five-year-old, well, it's going to be different than a 15 year old, but, um, you know, and I would refer you to Derek miles is a uh, multi-part series on our website, uh, for like training youth, uh, youth folks. Uh, but yeah, would highly recommend starting people young. So eight-year-old resistance training. 10 year old resistance train 12 year old resistance train 14 year old should have already been resistance training but if they're not great great time to start is today that's the greatest the greatest time to start would have been yesterday but the second best time to start is today so uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. okay last question before we get to the take home points you're like Jerry Springer's you know closing thought uh, is it true that the fracture occurs first before the fall or does the fall happen and then the fracture occurs? Cause I've been wondering.
2: Yeah, you looked this up too. Why don't you answer? Yeah, I did. It? <laughs> yeah, well, right.
0: I actually did. I didn't know this question. So it actually it, it seems to depend on actually the, actual, the um, uh, direction of the fall. So it seems like when people fall forward, there's, there's usually some impact preceding uh, the the fracture uh, and fall. So that seems to be like they fall then then fracture if they fall forward so like they tripped or something like that or um otherwise lost their balance fell forward if they fall to the side it seems to be due to the fracture first and then the fall which i thought was fascinating i don't know this has any impact on like the clinical like the trajectory for these people you know but i also thought it was fascinating because that's something you hear right like people just say it like nah most people they actually break their hip first and then they fall it's like do they though i don't know (laughs) yeah well i don't don't know either but now i know like the directionality matters so there you go uh all right take on points austin's corner at the end what do you want people to know so i
2: want people to know that osteoporosis is a decrease in bone quality increases the risk of fracture even though you may hear people use words like fragile brittle etc these are unhelpful promote fear of movement fear of activity fear of loading do not use them with people instead emphasize the adaptability of, uh, bone in general, uh, just like muscle adaptability, which more people tend to appreciate. We would prefer to prevent osteoporosis by achieving a high bone mass early in life. So training and good nutrition as a child, as you just mentioned, we want to decrease the rate of bone loss later in life, also through training and nutrition. Some people may still develop osteoporosis, nonetheless, even if they're doing all of this stuff due to things outside of their control. Um, And so if you are diagnosed, whether due to an unfortunate fracture or by DEXA screening, if you're a member of those demographics that we mentioned, you should work with a physician to check for either other underlying reasons why this could have happened um, and to weigh the risks and benefits of further treatment, such as the medicines that we mentioned. And you can use that Mayo Clinic shared decision aid with your doctor together to kind of work through this. The goals of treatment should be to prevent fractures and to prevent falls, Uh, We don't want a exclusive or overly kind of myopic focus on just the bone mineral density numbers alone on the DEXA scans. Remember that these scans do have some error range, particularly if you're jumping between different machines to get these tests done or if you move or something like that. Uh, So focusing on, the nutrition side with supplementation if the diet's inadequate um medications if the risk merits you know treatment with medications and getting people training with sufficient intensity um and focusing on those areas of the body that uh, are most uh, uh, important for physical independence mobility uh, and things like that and then treating any other conditions that may be present uh, along the way that would be my summary
0: i love it Uh, We've linked some resources in the description below, but that is a wrap on episode 161 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out to Dr. Baraki for Made His Way Back Home. Here on the Bartlemanson <laughs> Podcast, uh, if this is your first podcast that you've listened to and you made it this far, awesome! Head back through the library; we have a bunch of cool episodes so you can get your fix on all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Before you guys go anywhere, leave us a five star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so that we can break two million downloads before the end of twenty twenty one. I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe twenty twenty two. Going to set set a new benchmark: two million downloads. I have no idea what that transfers over to other than like two million you know like one person downloaded one episode two million times or (laughs) like whatever uh but in any case we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast thanks for listening
1: to line their pockets. The Durban Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall Credit Card Bill.